House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. All right, you're back in the House of Mystery on KKNW 1150 AM Seattle and KCAA 106.5 FM Los Angeles. I'm your host, Al Warren, and my co-host today is from the UK, Julie Sav. Hiya. Good to be here. <laughs> he sounds so excited. Um, okay, now today uh, we have, uh, we're going into the paranormal style, and of course we've got a... Uh, researcher it's been around for years everybody knows him joshua p warren thank you for being here oh thank you so much for having me on the program uh, it's a, a real pleasure and i know we'll get into some fascinating topics today al i'm sure we will um uh, <laughs> it took us a while to connect up with joshua because the uh fbi cia everybody's on our phone lines here now <laughs> <laughs> after after the Roger Stone interview, you guys can get off now. We're not really getting into anything about Trump, so hang up. <laughs> so now, Joshua, now we were watching your latest news. Like your, uh, you have that little uh, time warp um, thing that happened to you. So uh, maybe tell everybody about that. We watched the video, but but let the listeners know what happened. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I right now am in Las Vegas, Nevada, where I have a part-time residence. Uh, I just established that recently. I've been doing a lot of work out here, shooting TV programs, and I also produced a big event out here recently. And uh, I've been, of course, intrigued with this area for quite a while because, of course, last year the Pentagon admitted that they were back engineering some uh, UFO debris in various buildings in the Las Vegas area, so that's pretty profound news. And then, of course, there's a, of course a long history here of um, exotic technology being tested. There are stories about Area 51 and gravitational manipulation and all that kind of stuff that might be associated with UFOs. So it was perfect timing when I received a message from a Silicon Valley engineer named Ronald Heath. Now, he has spent decades building all kinds of electronics, and um, his interest in UFOs and various electronic anomalies has always been kind of a guilty pleasure. And he invented a meter called a differential time rate meter. Um, and he contacted me as the very first field investigator to see if I would be interested in obtaining one of these meters. And uh, he explained to me that he was inspired by an episode of the X-Files in which Mulder would put, uh, I guess Mulder put a stopwatch next to his car, and then he went to a UFO hotspot with another stopwatch. And he compared the two later and found that they, had, uh, they were not uh, running at the same rate, so it was like something had distorted time there. And that's essentially what this DT meter does. Uh, it's a pretty simple device in terms of its usage. I mean, it's got a meter with the screen that's supposed to always register 0.000000, and then that's attached to a 100-foot cable that has a sensor on the end. And that sensor is constantly sending a signal to the meter. 
and it's always supposed to get there at a constant rate of time at any particular place once it's calibrated. Uh, that's not supposed to change unless something huge happens, like a black hole approaches Earth or you know, something along those lines. And so um, in testing this, I decided to take it to Area 51. And I envisioned that maybe as I traveled from Las Vegas hours north to Area 51, stopping along the way here and there, testing, that maybe as I got closer to Area 51, I'd pick up some kind of time anomaly because they might be working on some kind of alien technology that manipulates gravity in space-time. Well, it turns out, uh, ironically, I didn't find that much that was interesting around Area 51. But just outside of Las Vegas, just north of Vegas, about, um, I guess, 20 miles or so north, out in the middle of the desert, sure enough, I measured time slowing down by 20 microseconds. So that means if you took one second and you sliced it into 100 little pieces, one of those pieces is a microsecond. And so it's very small, but it's very significant when you consider that I tested this thing over and over and over and over all over the place, never got anything out of the ordinary. When I reported this to Ron Heath, he was just ecstatic because he's had two of these things running for months in his lab, and he has never gotten an anomaly. And it just so happens, Al, that this particular spot in the desert where I got this anomaly is one of the most prominent UFO hotspots where people are constantly seeing and filming strange lights in the sky at night. So this is just the beginning of my research, but this was reported by Fox News, and over the past week, this story has gone all over the world. It's now in Newsweek and Inside Edition that made the Drudge Report, and so there's a lot of discussion happening right now about uh, this finding and how it may or may not relate to paranormal phenomena. So did you, did you know, Josh, in the exact spot that you, you laid down that 100-foot that cable, did you already know that was a hot spot for UFOs, or was it guesswork? Because on your video, you've got numerous um, places that you tested, but why that particular spot? Why did you choose that particular finite spot? Well, it's really because that that was the first spot on my drive to Area 51 where they did not have these traffic cones on the side of the road because they were doing road construction for miles and miles and miles. They're, they're renovating the highway there, uh, Route 93. And so I would have pulled over uh, much sooner, <laughs> but that was the first spot where it seemed that I had a convenient opportunity to pull over. So it was just serendipitous, I suppose. Um, there was, I mean, it was kind of a nondescript area, and then it was only later on that I realized that wow, this is where a lot of that really amazing UFO footage has been coming from. And, and what's even crazier is that since this has been released, I actually had, uh, I got the email yesterday from somebody accusing me of stealing somebody else's idea because supposedly six or seven months ago, some other fella had gone to that same spot and said there was a time anomaly. And I was like, what? So um, I'm not sure uh, how to make sense of all this, but I think that... Um, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, this is the, the very first step in the process is gathering data. Uh, it's, it's difficult to see how this is going to, um, to lead, uh, lead us, but I have a feeling that I, I will eventually find these time anomalies are much more uh, regularly dispersed than one would imagine and that they probably 
once plotted properly, will uh, coincide with many of these areas where people experience strange phenomena. And what's the relevance to the, the time anomaly? Because it is, it is a millisecond. So what would be the benefit of, of, of that being there in, in a kind of an alien context? Well, you know, when it comes to UFOs in particular, time has always been um, an interesting attribute to their sort of technology. So, for example, you have these stories about, say, a guy in Texas at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday night who's heading down the interstate, and all of a sudden, uh, a UFO flying saucer type is over the, the truck, and the truck just stops, and uh, the beam of light comes down, and, and nothing will work. And then the saucer flies away, and suddenly the truck starts working again. Uh, it's not like he had to turn the ignition. It's not like the engine was turned off and he had to restart it. It was like time itself had been frozen there. And uh, there have been a number of particular cases along these lines. Uh, in 1978, um, there was a UFO researcher who documented uh, the same type of thing supposedly happening with frozen time, missing time around a UFO encounter. And, um, of course, when you get into some of these stories about Area 51 in particular, uh, Bob Lazar, who is the controversial whistleblower who came out in the 1990s claiming that he used to work at Area 51 back engineering stuff, he says, and I sat right there in person and, and heard him say this, he says that he was shown an engine that manipulates gravity and therefore manipulates time around it, and they, in the laboratory, could take a candle and put that candle right next to this engine, and the candle flame would freeze. And it was obvious that time itself was, was being frozen or stilled right around this particular engine that they'd gotten off of this UFO. And so these kinds of stories go on and on, but what you find is that even though that's how time might relate to UFO technology, uh, you also have to think about other types of paranormal activity. Uh, ghosts are often seen out of their place in time. They are often seen in the, from the past, or we have... Uh, cryptids that seem to uh, to vanish in mid-trail. You hear these stories, somebody's following Bigfoot's footprints and Bigfoot vanishes, you know, right in the middle of the trail. Well, he has changed his position in space, and so if space and time are related, well, there's another time orientation issue. Uh, when it comes to psychic phenomena, ESP, people are always talking about getting impressions from the past or the future. Uh, so time seems to be an integral component to most of the prominent things that we describe as being uh, paranormal or enigmatic or, you know, along those lines. And therefore, it seems to me, if we understand more about how time operates on this planet, it might give us some insight into, um, A, uh, how we are able to measure and document these things, but maybe more importantly, B, how we ourselves perceive them, how it changes the way the brain works, and, and how the, the little uh, subatomic particles sort of crackle in your, in your brain cells that might allow you to experience things on a, on a different level. So, now, uh, how, do you, how do you plan on investigating more in Area 51? Uh, most of it they don't let you into. 
Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't have any plans to try to go knocking on the door at Area 51. You know, a lot of people think of that as a as a tourist attraction, but it's not. I mean, it's a serious classified base. Uh, every day there are hundreds, if not over a thousand, people who get on on airplanes here in Las Vegas and are flown there and back for their regular work day. Um, and so, yeah, I don't have any. Um, any plans to try to go on to the base, but what I want to do is to go all around the Las Vegas area um, and start just taking these comparative results, uh, because that's that's all I can do is go around and try to plot the data at different areas and then see if ultimately I get some kind of a pattern or a correlation and uh, and, and maybe one that will, uh, if, if, it, if it aligns with some of these uh, strange experiences give us more insight into that relationship between space-time and, for lack of a better term, the paranormal. What, what, what do you think it is? Like, what do you think is causing this? Uh, do you think it's something that they're experimenting with, or is it just kind of a, an effect from something else they're doing? Well, you know, if my best guess, and this goes, I'll explain to you in a second, you know, why I feel this way. My best guess is that this is actually probably a natural phenomenon, um, and uh, that, that there are places on planet Earth where um, you could call them, you know, wrinkles in time exist, and that we find that... Uh, it, Space-time is a much more flexible, flickering, unstable thing than we have been led to believe because we now are getting technology that's so sensitive it's making it more obvious. And so uh, I'll give you some examples of this. Uh, if you go to Google and you just type in NASA gravity map, uh, it will bring up all of these interesting images that show Earth color-coded, either red or blue, and this illustrates the different strengths of the gravitational field around the planet. In some places, the gravitational field is stronger, and some places it's weaker, uh, stronger indicated by red, weaker by blue. And we know, according to everything that we've learned about quantum physics, that weaker gravity um, it produces a different uh, time rate flow than, than a strong gravitational field. So in other words, a clock in your basement should uh, literally run more slowly than a clock in your attic because gravity slows time, and it's a very, very minute amount, but it is a change nonetheless. And I found by doing years of research in the Bermuda Triangle that you have this hot spot we call the Bermuda Triangle, which happens to be so blue on this NASA gravity map that you see it has some of the weakest gravity on Earth. And yet you have some of these other parts of the world where the gravity is very strong, and uh, you have these red patches, and that's where you often find pyramids, sacred sites. Um, and these are places where people would often go to seek some kind of refuge from the paranormal because, you know, modern-day guys like myself are kind of crazy wanting to go out and experience these potentially spooky things. Uh, ancient people didn't like that. And so it seems like that all around Earth there are places that may be more or less prone to paranormal activity because of their proximity to strong or weak gravitational fields. And I think that it may be that places like Brown Mountain, 
where I'm from in western North Carolina, where people see these anomalous lights, the brown mountain lights, uh, might be an example of what happens sometimes at these places, that um, you have uh, a variety of sort of shifting variables in, in and around the Earth, and sometimes that actually creates some kind of a luminous effect, and it might almost be like getting a peak or a glimpse into, frankly, some kind of other dimension. Well, now, um, what? So, what, the bottom line is, what's going on in Area Fifty One? Like, is that government known, and is it really with aliens? Do you think, or is it just old technology of something that crashed on Earth? Well, at, at Area Fifty One is, you know, it is a bona fide uh, classified military installation. It's a U.S. Air Force Army installation. Um, nobody even knows for sure what its actual name is. Um, it, it's only been called Area 51 since that's what it was designated on a map, I think, in the 1950s when they were looking at places to test out aircraft for, for secret missions during the Cold War. Um, I think that the, the bulk of what happens at Area 51 is just the development and testing of uh, military aircraft. And, 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 of course, there are lots of examples of that. You know, the stealth bombing technology and all that has come from Area 51. So it would make sense, however, that throughout the decades, when there has been some kind of uh, crashed UFO retreat, um, that you would take it to a place like Area 51, where you have the best minds in, the, in engineering and aviation in the world, who are going to, to try to break it down and figure out how it works. So I don't think that, that, that most of what they're doing there uh, has to do with, uh, with aliens, but I do think that there are, are areas where they are, are certainly looking into um, a, what we would consider exotic, perhaps alien technology, and uh, but... You know, I don't know how far they progressed, and, and again, this is not speculation. I mean, if you just look at the report that came out last year from the Pentagon uh, that was verified by Senator Harry Reid and, and many others, I mean, they admitted that they, they're doing this, and, and they admitted they're doing it in the Las Vegas area. So, Joshua, we, we have a lot of uh, listeners now coming across from the UK, and Obviously, you know, you've had those connections and, and investigations in the UK. Can you tell us a little bit about that? My investigations in the UK? Yeah. Um, well, I guess the most outstanding thing for me that I've done in the UK was uh, just an investigation of the Tower of London. Um, I yeah, I was, uh, and that, I, I didn't have as much time as I wanted to because I was on my way back from Romania. I'd gone to Transylvania to uh, investigate a lot of the castles owned by Vlad the Impaler, and uh, that was quite an experience for a couple of weeks. So on my way back, yeah, I stopped, and um, I did not arrange anything formal. Uh, I had a bag of gear with me. And uh, I sort of went through the Tower of London and the, the whole piece of property there, taking various measurements. And, and I wasn't really surprised to find that there are indeed some very bizarre uh, electromagnetic and electrostatic anomalies, especially in some of these areas that 
are pretty deep below the surface and, and really shouldn't have that kind of activity. So, um, you know, I find that sometimes when it comes to places that have uh, an enormous amount of great history, um, there may be what we think of as an imprint there that is left behind by the amount of uh, sort of disruptive energy in the environment. And we don't understand that. Yeah, exactly. And we don't understand exactly how that works. I mean, it, it tends to suggest that there it may be some property of the environment that is able to record um, everything that happens. And if, if that's the case, then we might someday be able to tap into that technologically and play it back and actually witness history as, as it really occurred. Um, so, so I think that's the kind of thing that's probably trapped in, in the Tower of London. Uh, and so that's the most extensive investigation I think I've done right there in, in uh, the UK. That's fascinating because, of course, one of the things that people say is residual energy is attractive and can be transmitted through water. And, of course, you, that's right on the water, the River Thames, which is yeah. fairly fast-flowing, so the energy is high. And you've got thousands of people going through there every day. Yes, and I, I've spent um, most of the past five years uh, on the island of Puerto Rico as the uh, owner and director of the Bermuda Triangle Research Center, which I've had to close down temporarily due to all of the hurricane troubles from last year. But mm -hmm. uh, same kind of situation, you're right. You know, when you're on an island and you're, you're surrounded by so much water, and then also you have enormous drama. I mean, uh, the, all the great world powers have been fighting over Puerto Rico for hundreds of years. The Spanish, the English, the Dutch, the French. I mean, America is just the latest invader, frankly. You know, they came in and took it in 1898. Um, a lot of, uh, of, of war and drama and struggle has occurred there. It's surrounded by water. It's a very beautiful place, but it's also a very paranormally active place. And, I mean, are you coming from all of your investigations from a scientific perspective, or is there a part of you that is incredibly spiritual yourself and intuitive? Well, I think, you know, there ought to be a balance, because um, I think that if you're going to try to document things, your best bet is to try to use the scientific method, to observe things, to use Occam's razor to try to rule out ordinary explanations, look for patterns and correlations, see what you can test, can you form a, a hypothesis and maybe ultimately a theory. Uh, however, I also realize that there are things that are very real to us which cannot be scientifically studied or documented. So uh, one of those things is as simple as uh, human emotions. I can't scientifically prove that I love someone, or, or I can't scientifically prove um, even more um, specific things, like that I can't prove to you what I dreamed last night. I mean, to me, it was a very distinctive experience. I can remember it. I can repeat it. But I can't scientifically prove to you what I dreamed. And what we find very interesting about that concept is that, in fact, uh, most of what we call history cannot be scientifically verified. Uh, most of history is the product of what's been uh, written down or, or passed down through word of mouth. And so um, we, we are we're not even 
exactly sure about our, our, our identity, you know, because of that. But the, the deeper issue, I believe, is to think that we have fooled ourselves as a modern society into believing that the scientific method gives us some kind of an objective handle on things when, in fact, most scientists are using tools and those tools were conceived by humans, created by humans, calibrated by humans, used by humans, interpreted by humans. Uh, human beings are the beginning and the end of the process. And so um, uh, the, the tools are just that. They are, they are tools. But uh, ultimately, the, the research that we do is a human endeavor. So I have to come back to you because I'm I'm finicky like that. I have to come back to then what your beliefs are. Well, I mean, for one thing, um, I believe that there is a creator. I believe there is a design. Uh, I don't believe that we die. Um, I think that uh, energy it can be neither created nor destroyed. It simply changes forms and it just moves from one spot to another. And what we see when we look out there at the world is this uh, incredible uh, symmetry, incredible balance, uh, incredible transitions from energy into matter and back again. And, and we realize how that those things are really the same. Uh, they're just operating at different vibrations. Uh, and so, you know, I feel that um, we, we get very, very egocentric. Uh, being, you know, humans, little tiny things that are almost, well, insignificant, really, in terms of everything else we can see out there in the universe. Uh, we, we have pretty big egos here for some reason, and um, but we are just, uh, you know, droplets in this ocean, and I think that it's fascinating to see the different ways in which energy can uh, manifest over and over again, and the best thing you can do is project some kind of um, positive wavelength, because uh, if you do that, then that's going to determine most of what comes back to you in life. When you, when you said you were doing research with the uh, Bermuda Triangle Research Center, mm -hmm. um, I was just wondering now, so in the 60s and 70s, uh, it, it was really talked about in the mainstream a lot, all of the different missing planes and, and ships and stuff. Um, is this still going on in the Bermuda Triangle, or did it stop? Oh, no, that's still going on. Um, in fact, uh, the last one I remember was last year. Um, there was a plane that left from just 45 minutes north of our Bermuda Triangle research base, and um, it had a woman and her two kids and uh, her boyfriend. And uh, the weather was absolutely perfect. They left. All signs were good. And all of a sudden, boom, they vanished. And there's no trace of them to this day. Um, there are also cases like the, um, um, the, the merchant ship a few years ago that went down. It was traveling to San Juan. Uh, gosh, the name of the, escapes me right now. But uh, when, when that ship, it was hit by a freak storm. But what's funny is that when they went down to the ship, they could never find any of the bodies. Now, we're talking about sealed compartments within this big ship, and so the bodies were gone. But, but you see, what's, what's interesting, however, is that if you talk about the disappearances related to the triangle, 
um, there, there are a couple things to keep in mind. Number one is that um, it's not about how many of these things disappear. It's about the way in which they disappear that makes them so outstanding, where it's, it's, a, it's a nice sunny day and all of a sudden one person's here and then they're gone. And then secondly, um, it's not necessarily uh, – that's not really the most significant thing about the Bermuda Triangle. That's one part of it. But what you find there is this other really extreme paranormal activity. So if you take the island of, of uh, Puerto Rico, for example, it's only 100 miles by 35 miles, and yet there uh, you probably have more paranormal activity per square foot than just about anywhere else I've been, uh, and that's because, for one thing, uh, you do have this war-torn history I was talking about. You've got the, you know, the oldest, most well-preserved city that's a, in, within U.S. territory there, old San Juan, uh, when it comes to UFOs, you have massive, massive UFO, USO, OUFO sightings, all kinds of military installations around there. You have the Arecibo Observatory, which up until recently was the largest radio satellite dish in the entire world, which has been you know, featured in movies like Contact with Jodie Foster, uh, a lot of UFO stuff. When it comes to cryptids and weird creatures, I mean, it is the birthplace of the chupacabra. A chupacabra doesn't come from Mexico, and it's not like some kind of mangy-looking little coyote. You know, the chupacabra is a bipedal, alien-looking thing uh, that may be actually the product of some government experimentation that's been done in Puerto Rico, which has been very well historically documented. Uh, they also have other bizarre creatures you've probably never heard of, like the gargula, which is sort of like a mothman-type being. And I sat right there face-to-face -face and interviewed five active-duty police officers who had all seen this thing and, and were running around chasing it with guns and flashlights and everything. So I could go on and on, but the point is that um, when you have a spot like Puerto Rico that's right in the center of the Bermuda Triangle, one of the, the, it's the center of the three points, it goes to show you that the triangle is, is a place where, yes, you have these warp-like experiences where maybe people, they get uh, sucked into some other realm or whatever and disappear, but that's just one of many, many things in this phantasmagoria of activity in the triangle. Sounds like a Walmart. <laughs> you should see the Walmart there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Creatures. Now, one thing that really interested me that I see that you have, it says that you are the inventor of parasitematics. Uh, research. Now, what exactly is that? Yes, that's right. So this is a field that I created last year. And um, it goes back to Julie's question about, you know, the, um, the idea, I guess, of matter and energy and, and how science and spirituality and all that might relate. Well, I've always been fascinated by how that a vibrational energy can be transformed into a physical formation. And I was especially interested in the work of a German scientist and musician named Ernst Schladny, who uh, was working in, I believe, the late 1700s, early 1800s. He would take a thin piece of metal and sprinkle a thin layer of sand on top of it and then run a violin bow down the side of the metal, and the sand would snap into all of these beautiful patterns that look like snowflakes. 
And so you can do this today with more modern techniques like taking a, a, an audio speaker and putting it underneath sand or water or some kind of a semi-solid substance like cornstarch and water. And you can get these same patterns that will emerge and that, that basically show you the vibration. And, and it's fascinating because you have this thing that's invisible, yet it's holding this visible form into place. And so as I was playing with this, uh, this technique, which is known as cymatics, I began to wonder what might happen if I started inserting messages into these tones to create a very specific type of pattern. And as I went down this train of thought, I, I was reminded of some of the investigations I've done with cursed and creepy little things like Robert the Haunted Doll. Um, I was apparently the first person who ever shined a UV light on him because he was usually kept under a glass case, and you can't shine a UV black light through a glass case very, very well. And so uh, I shined a UV light on him years ago and found an odd little symbol um, that only was a, uh, visible in the ultraviolet range. And uh, Robert the Haunted Doll, of course, supposedly comes to life, and there's a whole story about him being connected with voodoo. And a lot of people said that this looked like a sigil, which is sort of a, a, a seal that is, represents some kind of a magical ritual. And as I started inserting messages into these tones... I started getting different types of patterns that looked a lot like sigils. And so what I eventually started doing was taking different types of water, and I mean by that sometimes uh, salt water, sometimes distilled water, sometimes ocean water, sometimes tonic water, whatever, taking different types of water, um, playing tones underneath, and then viewing the water using different kinds of light. I'd look at it through ultraviolet light, like I did with Robert the Haunted Doll. Then I'd look at it with infrared light. Then I'd look at it with laser light. And when you look at these under the right kind of lighting, boom, there are moments when this, this pattern really becomes nice and crisp. And so, and, and again, it would look very much like a sigil. So the first thing I did was I, I created a tone that said, um, I would like to attract a ghost, right? And so I, I ran the tone, I got a nice image that appeared, and then I took that image, I printed it out, and this was about probably, I'm going to say 2 o'clock in the morning, and my wife, Lauren, was asleep. And so um, I went on such a nice husband that I went up to the bedroom door, and I put that sigil I just created outside the bedroom door to see what would happen. And about... Two and a half hours later, while I was downstairs watching a movie, my wife, who was a very sound sleeper, came down the stairs and said, Did you just come into the bedroom? And I said, No. And she said, Well, our house must be haunted then because something keeps shoving me in the bedroom. And uh, once I explained to her what I had done, um, she was not very happy, but I promised that I would never do that particular experiment again. But she's used to it by now. We've been together for over 20 years. So that said... I started doing all kinds of other experiments, and I said, well, maybe you can create sigils for all kinds of things. Maybe you can create one for money. I was about to go to a casino, and I created a sigil to attract money. 
and I went to the casino and hit a big jackpot. And then I said, well, maybe I can create a sigil that would um, uh, be helpful for uh, a peace and quiet, you know, because there are times when some of the neighbors would get a little noisy. And so I started making all these sigils, putting them on my website for free. Uh, they're there right now, joshuapwarren.com. Uh, if you go there and scroll down the homepage, you'll find them. And I always tell people there is no period after the P in joshuapwarren.com as a website address. If you scroll down, you can find these sigils. And people started experimenting with them, and now I have received, I'm sure, well over a thousand messages from people around the world over the past year who have been telling me about the most profound experiences using these sigils. In fact, I know uh, three people who have gotten them tattooed on their body. And so, um, so this is something I plan to experiment with much, much more, but it has to do with the idea that there's a connection between these sort of magical symbols of, of old and what we now can understand and perhaps reproduce using our uh, tools to take uh, vibration and turn them into forms and patterns. One of the most common themes that's running through um, your, your discussion this evening, Joshua, is, is a communication. So it doesn't matter what area of the paranormal that you're talking about, it's all about that communication and, and getting validation that there's something more. Well, one of the things I notice is that you, you also have um, a museum and ghost tours in Asheville. Yes. Is that, is that your particular, kind of suppose, your, your baby, the ghost stuff, or is it, is, are you more kind of towards the... Um, the UFO side of things or the historical application? Well, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of that quote by Charles Fort that uh, one can measure a circle beginning anywhere. And uh, I think that anybody who gets involved with this strange field we call the paranormal, whether they come in through ghosts or UFOs or psychic phenomena or cryptozoology, if they stick with it long enough, then most people start to see the connections between everything. And for me, my first step in was definitely through ghostly phenomena. Um, I was born and raised in Asheville, North Carolina, which is the heart of the oldest mountains in North America. And so my family has been in that area on both mom and dad's side for hundreds of years. So I grew up hearing a lot of these really interesting sort of ghost stories and campfire tales and pioneer folklore and Native American legends and that kind of thing that often centered around uh, a spiritual world. And so when I was a teenager, I became curious as to whether or not this stuff was real, and I started writing about it. Uh, I got a job at the, the newspaper, which is to this day the largest newspaper in the region, the Asheville Citizen Times and investigating these things, and, and it, finally I, I, I started publishing books, and I published a book called Haunted Asheville, which was the first book of Asheville ghost stories ever published. It became a regional bestseller, and that was really the first time I, I, I considered that I could make a living um, writing about spooky things. And so I continued pursuing this, in fact, for years before I ever actually saw anything that, that ghostly myself. Um, and so that book uh, immediately turned into an activity, and so uh, that turned into a tour business. And then uh, all my adventures brought me into contact with places where I could bring back artifacts and um, 
that naturally progressed into the museum. And so, uh, so now, you know, Asheville, North Carolina, where we have my haunted Asheville ghost tours and the Asheville Mystery Museum, is uh, is definitely a base camp for my operations. And uh, in fact, uh, it's now the largest walking tour in the state of North Carolina. It's one of the most popular attractions, and so I'm, I'm very pleased that to this day people still find it uh, fascinating. That's fantastic, and it's amazing that the scope of investigation that you do. I mean, as a psychic medium myself, um, I think you're right, you do become more kind of attuned to, to different things, but I'm, I'm slightly different in that I tend to just, I very much keep my focus on my mediumship and don't overcomplicate things. What's your, what's your view on, on how... I, for example, would communicate with spirit. How do you think, personally, I would do that? Well, in my opinion, um, when we pass into spirit, we become more like a stream of information that's within the environment, frankly. Um, so let me put it this way. Uh, a good analogy might be, well, the Internet. Um, so if you bring up a website on the Internet and you see a tree there, um, you know that there's not a real tree there. Uh, what you're seeing is a pattern of information. And it, you can print a picture out, and you can get some kind of a physical representation of that tree that you can hold in your hand, which is kind of like what the body is. Uh, when you wad that piece of paper up and throw it in the garbage, though, that doesn't mean the tree is not still there on your screen. So the screen is, is a design, uh, a pattern of information which represents who you are. And so I feel like that when we die, that information sort of disperses back into the, the environment in a way that is, um, is probably much more complex and even more beautiful in some ways than we can imagine, because I, I tend to think that you don't necessarily stick into one singular personality. You probably can merge into two or three other personalities. And so I believe that probably if you're going to be, uh, you know, tapping into that, so to speak, um, maybe the best thing to do is to go into an environment and see if the environment speaks to you. And so, because I've never had a ghost appear and give me a message, you know. I mean, that's just, that's just never happened. And I'm not saying it can't happen. It's just never happened to me. But I can certainly go into a room and feel like that this room is saying something. And um, so uh, I think that, you know, that's probably one of the key factors is to not think so much about uh, speaking to some uh, individual that's sort of uh, congealed in front of you in some humanoid form, but instead thinking of the information that's that's at that place that will give you a much sort of richer view, not only of the personality there, but also uh, the, the past and the future, because I don't think time is necessarily as, as relevant at that stage. So it's kind of a vague answer, but that's pretty much where we are right now. Thank you. It's very complicated and it's very difficult to ask that question um, and to be answered and have that answered back. Um, difficult for you because um, there would be a, you know, we've all got different views, so therefore you wouldn't want to be um, offending or taking something away from my belief and vice versa. So it was a, a bit of a, a difficult question and I apologise for that. Oh, no, not at all. I think it's great. I mean, and, and this also shows us 
the um, the boundaries and the limits of what we can do here in this particular incarnation. I mean, there's only so much that we can comprehend. Uh, that's why I tend to think that um, your life is similar to the life of an ant that's crawling back and forth on a gigantic photograph. Now, a huge photograph is made up of little dots, little pixels. And so the ant it only has the brain capacity to process this one pixel at a time. And so you go back and forth, left and right, left and right, like a little scanner, and you scan this in pixel by pixel. And there are times where you get a clear picture, a clear picture, but not until the very end when you actually have your moment of death does it all flash before your eyes, you know, and that's what, that's what people talk about, their lives flashing before their eyes, and you see it because you're not limited for a moment, and, and it gives you a fuller idea of what you've been experiencing, and so that's why it's so difficult to describe these things, I believe, because we have to acknowledge our own limited capacity to comprehend all of this at once because we are so small and the universe is so uh, fantastically complex and huge and unimaginably vast. I was reading uh, an excerpt from uh, an author actually that we've interviewed before on the show some time ago now, Rob Goutreau, who, who, um, who sent me his book, um, bless him, and it, the book is called Lessons Learned from Talking to the Dead, and he talks about it in exactly the same way that you just have, where these energies that cannot be destroyed or created, they just they just shift, they just change. And he says that when you pass over, all, all of a sudden you become all-knowing, because you totally, your energy merges with that of the cosmos. So you just become part of, and you suddenly realize why it is, and what it is that you maybe could have done better when you were on, on Earth, um, and you have a choice then of whether you'd return to, to undertake more lessons or whether you stay um, in uh, a higher a higher level. And, and he talks about the different levels. Um, so is, is that kind of your understanding? Do you, do you believe that we then have a choice to come back down to Earth to relearn lessons? Do you believe in the lessons theory? Uh, I, I do. I do think that um, we always have some kind of choice that we can make, uh, no matter what level of incarnation we're at. And right now, we we only are able to think about uh, this sort of animalistic ego that, that drives us, um, because that's that's sort of the representation of the body that we're, we're trapped in right now. I mean, we're not that different from all these other creatures on Earth. You know, I mean, they claim we're all physically related, and I don't doubt that that's true. Um, and so we're, we're driven by this sort of animal instinct, which makes it difficult for us to sometimes think about anything other than uh, how am I going to uh, pay the bills, how, where am I going to get my next meal, how am I going to you know, fulfill this promise. And so um, that distracts us from these other bigger options. On the other hand, uh, it may be that there are people uh, on the other side, if you want to call it that, who realize, wow, uh, now I don't have to be burdened with that animal instinct as much, and I can look back at this experience almost like a movie, and I can pick 
whether or not I want to go in and experience a different type of movie. So some people go to the theater and they want to see a sad movie for some reason. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to see a sad movie, but a lot of people do. There are people who want to go and they want to see something scary. They want to see some kind of horror movie. There are people who just want to see a comedy, people who want to see a documentary, whatever. And so I think you might be able to look back and say, okay, now that I understand what this is, I'm not afraid to go back and experience it in a different way. And maybe I'll pick up something different from the experience. And so, therefore, um, uh, there are times when I think people uh, come back, and then I think there are other times when uh, they just happen to end up wherever they are resonating at. So, uh, and what I mean by that is that uh, you have somebody who has created some kind of a very dense energy field that's not going to necessarily travel so easily. Uh, they might have to stick there for a while until they are, they're able to change that vibration and, they, and they're able to move onto another rung or another, another level or another degree of that vibration. Amazing. Uh, this is a great conversation, but we're running out of time. So, uh, Joshua, let's tell people where they can visit your site and uh, see your stuff. Yeah, well, thank you, Al. Uh, you, my website, again, is joshuapwarren.com. And, again, there's no period after the P, joshuapwarren.com. If you go there, then uh, you'll find all kinds of interesting material that's freely available, all kinds of pictures, video clips, research results. Um, uh, I have a free e-newsletter there you can subscribe to. Uh, I know a lot of people in Los Angeles listen to this program, and I may be doing some type of a speaking engagement uh, later this year in Los Angeles. So uh, you'll want to make sure you sign up for my free e-newsletter there to stay informed. And I also, of course, have my uh, curiosity shop with all kinds of weird stuff that you will not find anywhere else in the world. And I hope that uh, everybody will check that out and keep in touch with me through, uh, again, joshuapwarren.com. Excellent. And we'll have that link to our website as well, so our listeners can just uh, find it on there if they don't remember. So, Wonderful. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us a little bit about the uh, paranormal world. Well, it's, it's a great show. Alan and Julie, thank you both for having me, and I look forward to our future conversations. Thank you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.